we're in a series uh, called Grounded, and we're looking at the very fundamental things that help tie us in in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that keep us grounded with Him. And this morning, we're going to talk about 180. Now, I suspect that most of you have heard the expression, do a 180. Do you know where we got that expression? It comes from the directional degrees as seen on the face of a compass. Uh, the cardinal directions uh, are, are always visible on a compass, north, south, east, and west, represented by their initials. But the compass is also broken down into 360 degrees interspersed between those cardinal directions. Now, I tried to find out how, how was it decided that there were 360 degrees in a circle. Nobody seems to know. Uh, it goes so far back in history that, that it's unclear how we decided 360 degrees, other than some suggest that was the closest round number to the number of days in a year, since there's 365 days in a year. And some suggest it's because 360 is divisible by every number between 1 and 10, except for the number 7, which makes the math easy from that standpoint. Regardless, what you need to understand is that north is zero, south is 180, the complete opposite direction. So, to do a 180 is to go in the complete opposite direction. Now, long before GPS helped pinpoint our location and our destinations, the smart thing to do when lost was to do a 180. If on foot, turn around and retrace your steps. If in a car, go back to the nearest road or intersection that you recognize. If you're flying by visual flight rules and the weather unexpectedly changes, do a 180 and land at the nearest airport. Your life might depend on it. While these examples certainly require a physical response, you literally have to turn around, there is also a symbolic use of the term in, in reference to a person who goes back on his or her promise, something like this. He promised to reimburse me, but he did a 180, and now I'm stuck with the whole bill. There's also a much more important spiritual application as a matter of fact, I'm convinced that if John the Baptist had had a compass in his camel hair robe in the pocket, he would have named every one of his sermons that he preached 180, doing a 180. We are introduced to John's preaching in Matthew chapter 3 when he says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. After Jesus' baptism, the 40 days he spent in the wilderness being tempted in every possible way, he began his preaching ministry this way, Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So the message of John and the message of Jesus followed the same theme. It was the theme of repentance. It's such a churchy sounding word, isn't it? I mean, where else do you go and you hear the word repentance ever used except for church and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade movie? It's talked about in, in there. In, in the simplest of terms, repentance is doing a 180. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It's not just being sorry. It's being sorry enough to quit. Dwight L. Moody said, man is born with his back toward God. When he truly repents, he turns right around and faces God. This concept of repentance is vital because like faith, repentance is elementary to our relationship with the Lord. So uh, the question is this morning, how adept are you at making a spiritual 180 
when you realize the direction you're headed is away from God instead of toward God. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but Jesus may have preached repentance early on, but his message softened. He had some really positive things to say. Well, he, he did have some positive things today. He's had some hopeful and encouraging things, but I'm here to tell you, he never stopped re preaching repentance. He was preaching repentance up to the very end of his earthly ministry. I want to take you to the Gospel of Luke. There's a, there's a story, an event that takes place with Jesus, and this is late into his earthly ministry. And there's a group of Jewish people who I think are testing him in a certain way. And it starts out based on this Jewish concept that is also a concept that many of us hold. And that is, when tragedy strikes, the natural question is, what did this person do that God would punish him so terribly? You ever, you ever had somebody say that? Have you ever asked that? Lord, what did I do that these bad things are happening to me as if they're connected? We live in a broken world. That is life in a broken world. God does not send bad things and tragedies to you because you have done something terrible as opposed to something good. But that's a mindset that is hard to, to break. Luke chapter 13 opens with these words. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans. Remember, Jesus is a Galilean, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, Pilate, who was governor of Judea at that time, trying to squelch a rebellion before it really got off the ground, actually executed some people while they were making their sacrifices before God. It was a pretty bold step, and all of Galilee is just up. You know, they're indignant at this. Now, here's what they thought. They thought that Jesus, if he was the Messiah, would get indignant about this as well because they believed that the Messiah was going to come and overthrow Rome. And so they were waiting for Jesus' response as something like this. Pilate did that? If Pilate did that, then let's assemble an army and let's go up and we will defeat Rome. Jesus ignores all of that. He doesn't succumb to the ploy and he points to the more important need of everyone in the crowd. This is what he says. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. And then Jesus adds his own illustration. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Without repentance, Jesus says, everybody in this crowd, will perish, not just the people that died at the hands of Pilate, not just the people who died under the tower of Siloam. Then Jesus goes on and he gives this parable about a fig tree. Listen to what he says. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and so he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then I'll cut it down. Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to wait much longer to see the fruit of repentance. 
Now, fig trees were often planted in vineyards. A fig tree was, if you had a good fig tree, you, it was just kind of a sure thing that you'd have a crop. Fig trees produced three crops a year. The only two months when they didn't produce figs were the months of April and May. Other than that, you could harvest figs, but it took three years for the mature to, t- tree to come to maturity. And so here's, here's this farmer who has been waiting for three years for this fig tree in his vineyard to begin to produce figs, which would be an additional crop. And by the third year, he still finds nothing. The gardener does not want to give up on it. And the gardener says, give me one more year. I'll I'll see if I can get figs to produce. If not, then we'll cut it down. Jesus saying, I don't want to give up on you. But a tree that has a a, a person who has no repentance is like a tree that is soaking up the nutrients of the soil, that's soaking up the rain, that's keeping the other vines and branches from prospering. It's like the person who has no repentance, and eventually I will not put up with it any longer. God is patient, but he is not inexhaustible. Jesus said, it is time for the fruit of repentance to be seen. Now, I I think when we deal with repentance, there are a lot of misunderstandings about it. So, let's take a look at some repentance misunderstood this morning. Here's the first one. Repentance is not being sorry that you got caught. Okay? There are some people who appear sorry, but only that they've been found out. You know, that's not repentance. Anybody can be sorry if you get caught. That's embarrassing. That's shameful. And some people who are embarrassed when they get caught, if they knew they weren't going to get caught, would do the same thing over again because it's not a change of behavior. It's just this change of attitude. Dennis the Menace in one of his cartoons is kneeling beside his bed and praying, God, I'm sorry, but I've got a lot of I'm sorry's for you tonight. Every time I come to prayer, I've got a lot of I'm sorry's, God. But I'm here to tell you, I'm sorry isn't enough. If that's all we've got, it isn't enough, and it certainly isn't repentance. Being I'm sorry, God, is not equivalent with repentance. Repentance is not just a feeling. That's another misunderstanding we have. Oh, I feel so guilty, or oh, I feel so sorry for what I did. Oh, I'm so ashamed. I feel so ashamed for what I did. Well, that's good. But if that's all it is, it's not repentance. Repentance isn't a feeling. It's an action. It's a 180, remember? And repentance is not an attempt to fool God and avoid His anger. Children often push parents to the limit. If you're a parent, you understand that. If you're a kid, you understand that, okay? After a very exhausting day of dealing with disobedient kids, (laughs) Alice finally got her children in bed, was just totally drained, retreated to her bedroom and her bathroom. She washed her hair, wrapped it up in a towel, put on her grubbiest, most relaxing clothes, and then smothered her face in this white cream to take the tension out of it. And just, just as she was beginning to relax and the tension was beginning to ebb away, she heard the ruckus and raucous rumblings from down the hall, and she just lost it. She storms down the hall. She bursts into the kids' room in this towel and this white cream all over, and she just lays them out. She speaks in a volume way louder than she should have, and she told them in no uncertain terms that if they kept this up, they would suffer the consequences. And she stormed out, and as she went around the corner back into the hallway, she heard her three-year-old ask the older siblings, who was that? 
Adults are not so unlike kids when it comes to these kinds of things. We push God to the limit. We see how close that we get to the sin without maybe falling off the edge because we want what the sin offers without offending God too much. But the goal is really, let me see how close I can get. And, and we push God to the limit and we push God to the limit and God finally brings to bear on us what should have been brought to bear. Now, when a parent gets angry with a child, a, 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 child, a kid will do all kinds of things. Uh, they will try to lie about what they did. They will maybe run away and hide or they will just pretend that nothing happened. You know what? We do the same thing. We lie to ourselves, we lie to God as if God doesn't know what's going on. We run and hide just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Or we just pretend that there was no sin because if I pretend I didn't do anything wrong, God's not going to know. Aren't we that way? We're just like little kids. And sometimes we are so out of touch that when God speaks to us through his word, we say, who was that? I don't recognize his voice. When it comes to our guilt, we only have two options. Number one, we either confess our sin and allow God to forgiveness through the, forgive us through the blood of Jesus Christ and cleanse us from that sin. Or number two, we pretend that we don't have any sin and, and hope that that gets us through. The, the problem is you can pretend all you want, but deep down in your heart of hearts, you know what you've done wrong. I know what I've done wrong. You know what you've done wrong. I can pretend all I want, but it doesn't erase the burden of that guilt. There is only one successful solution to sin in our life, and that is to confess it before God and let him wash it away through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he will remove it as far as east is from west. So says Psalm 103 verse 12. When he washes our sins away, he washes them as far as east is from west. Do not miss the significance of that phrase. Go back to the compass face for just a minute. He could have said, as far as north is from south, but that would not have given us the whole story because when you start up, if you start going north, you'll eventually reach the North Pole, and when you start down the other side, you're going south. You can only go north for so long, and then you, then you start going south. Aren't you glad he didn't say, as far as north is from south? When you start going east, you just keep going east until you decide to go the other direction. God says, I'm going to remove your sin as far as east is from west. That is the only solution to our guilt, that it is washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ and that God removes it forever. How then do we understand repentance? Well, there's a lot of facets, but, but let me remind you just real quickly of this. It is, first of all, a change of our heart. Now, I said a few minutes ago that it's not a feeling, and that's true, but it's not devoid of feeling either. There has to be the sorrow there. And second of all, it is the, the change of will. Yes, it is an intellectual decision. You, you have to think this through. I mean, it, you, there, is, there is an intellectual process you go through, but it's deeper than just the intellect. It gets to the will of a person. I have to willfully want to change. I can have the knowledge that I need to change, but it's not until I make a decision to change. It, it, it incorporates my will, and it incorporates my soul. This is a spiritual matter. And when you put all that together, it changes our behavior. Repentance is incomplete until the behavior has changed. 
Because you can think and you can feel and you can want, but until you do it, it isn't repentance. When we do not repent and we try some other way to solve our sin issue, it's like pumping a corpse full of formaldehyde to make it look alive and healthy. No matter how hard you try, you see, death still brings decay. Sin results in death, and without repentance, spiritual decay is inevitable. No, not, no matter how nice the corpse looks, it's still a corpse. Repentance, genuine repentance, is the only action on our part that can bring new life to the soul. And, and, and so, how do we demonstrate this repentance? How, how can we look at what we need to do? Well, let me just give you some thoughts here about that. And, and it begins with really understanding what God's Word says about sin and our relationship to it. If you, if you don't know what the Word says, you're, you're, not, going to get the, you're not going to get it solved. Uh, after Mike Ditka got fired as the Chicago Bears football coach. He was trying to be somewhat uh, conciliatory at his press conference several years ago, and, and he made this comment. He says, as the scriptures say, this too shall pass. Now, I've never thought of Mike Ditka in a theological vein of being a great theologian, and there's good reason for that. That's not in the Bible. The scriptures don't say, this too shall pass. <laughs> How many times do you hear people say, the Bible says, and then they, they misquote something. In, in all fairness to Mike Dicta, he's just a part of this misquote club that has as its theme verse, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible either, although most people would bet their next week's paycheck that it is. Well, let me tell you a few other things that are not in the Bible. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Oh, that's got to be in the Bible. No, that comes from Samuel Butler, 17th century poet. Now, the book of Proverbs does say if you don't discipline your child, it's the same as hating your child. But it, 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 the quote, spare the rod to spoil the child, is not there. Here's another one. God moves in mysterious ways. He does, but that's not in there. <laughs> that's from an old song, okay? And so, some, people, <laughs> some people think this is in the book of Proverbs. Are you ready for this? That dog won't hunt. Now, I, I, you know, I, I thought, why not? That's, you know, I can understand that, you know, if somebody says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, that dog won't hunt. It sounds like it comes from Proverbs. Here's a good one. When God closes a door, he opens a window. That's not in the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. It is in the sound of music. Mother Superior at the Abbey says, when God closes the door, he opens a window. By the way, that's a tough moniker to live up to, isn't it? Mother Superior. <laughs> How about Mother Just Pretty Good? <laughs> can, I, can I say this? No one is superior. When it comes to dealing with temptation and sin, no one is superior. As a matter of fact, no one is just pretty good. We all really struggle with this, which is why we have to know what the Bible really says. Last one, God will never give you more than you can handle. It's close, but that's not in there either. 
Sometimes life throws us curveballs. I don't know about you, I, I, just, I just can't hardly handle them. The promise is not God will never give you more than you can handle. The promise that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 13, verse 10 or 10, 13, is this promise. God will never let you be tempted beyond what you are able to resist. Now, there's a difference between nothing's going to happen to you you can't handle God says, I will never let you be tempted beyond what you're able to resist. I'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can say no to. I'll never let you be tempted beyond what you can stand and tolerate, which then translated means when I sin, I have nobody to blame but me. And here's the bottom line. Since God has made that glorious promise that we will never face a temptation that we cannot resist, then my sinfulness, my sinfulness can only be remedied by embracing what God has done for me. And here's the bottom line. God cannot repent on your behalf. God can give us the gift of faith. God can give us the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. He can make possible our salvation through the shedding of his son's blood, but he cannot repent on our behalf. That is something only I can do. That is something only you can do. You and I are called to do a 180 so that we can embrace what God has done for us. You can group all temptations under two headings. You say, well, which temptations do I let go of? Well, all of them. But you can group them under two headings. The first one is simply this, let go of your pride. The, 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 the soil in which all other sins grow is the soil of pride. It's the one that fertilizes and gives roots to every other sin because that's the, that's the sin of Satan. That's what caused him to rebel against God. And that's what he plants in our heart, that I don't need God. All I need is me. And that's not true. I got to let go of my pride in order to embrace the Savior. True repentance will lead to true confession then. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Did you catch that? It's a conditional statement. If you do this, then the forgiveness comes. And purify is an ongoing term and will continue to purify us from our unrighteousness. Once we let go of our sin, then we are ready to reach out to Jesus Christ. But you can't hold on to him and the sin at the same time. If we confess our sin, then he will forgive us. Which then leads to the other side of this coin of confession. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Oh, faith leads to repentance. Repentance leads to our confessed sin and confessed sin leads us to confess our trust in Jesus Christ. So, let go of your pride. You can't hold on to your pride and hold on to Jesus at the same time. And let go of the world and everything that the world represents. That, that's the heartbeat of the story that Jesus told, that beautiful parable of the prodigal son. Do, do you know the turning point in the story? The, the, the young man has gotten away. He's lost all of his money. He's in the pig pen. He's feeding pigs, a Jewish boy feeding pigs. And the Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said, you know, my father's hired hands at home are doing better than I am. I am going to go home and confess my waywardness to my father. I'm going to go home and repent and just ask my father 
to make me one of his hired men. And he got up, turned around, and went home. He did a 180, leaving everything in the world behind and going right to the Father. That's repentance. It's leaving the world behind. It's turning around and going right back to the Father. Stay away from the people, the places, the possessions, the events that will cause you to compromise your character and your integrity. Let go of the temptation and the sin. Make sure you know what the Word says. Don't just say, well, I think the Bible says, and go off on some crazy tangent. Know what God has called us to. True repentance. Gary Richmond, at one point in his life, worked for a zoo. He went on to write a book uh, later, A View from the Zoo, and then he tells several stories about, that have spiritual application. One of them that has always intrigued me is the story of what he hated doing at the zoo twice a year, and that was when they had to surgically remove the skin of the king cobra that did not come off in the shedding process. And he said it was an awful ordeal. And he said there were five, at least five, that had to hold on to the cobra. And, and the curator's job was to hold the cobra right behind the neck while the others held and tried to restrain, restrain the muscles of this king cobra whose bite was so venomous that you, you couldn't have survived it. And, and Gary Richmond's job was when they had the snake finally in hand, he was to put a wad of paper towel in the cobra's mouth. And, and the cobra would chew on that, and it would bring the venom out. And, and you can understand Gary Richmond finally asked the curator why he had to do that. And the curator made this comment. He said, a man could never survive a bite from a full load of venom. And then he said this, my hands are sweaty, and my fingers are cramping under the strain of that muscular snake. When I let him go, it may not be quick enough. More people are bitten trying to let go of snakes than when they grab them because you get weak so quickly. Wow. Some of us are holding on to some pretty venomous serpents in our lives. Deeds and thoughts and actions and sins that are sapping our strength that are like venomous to us. And here's the thing. The longer you hold on to them, the more tired your grip becomes and you may not be able to let go of them quickly enough. And they will turn and bite with all the force of the venom that they hold. You see, sin is always a lot easier to grab a hold of than it is to let go. But God says, if you want everlasting life, if you want your sins cleansed and washed away as far as east is from west, then you better let go. And he's patient. Look at how much time he's given us. And listen to this hope that comes from first, Second Peter chapter 3. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, everyone to come to repentance. He's patient, but he's not inexhaustible. 
isn't it time we did a 180? Because true repentance will keep us grounded in Christ.